at church, um, and I was excited to come back because I remembered the, um, just the warmth and the fellowship that I felt as I came here, and, and um, I wasn't disappointed as I walked through the doors, um, and so I'm excited uh, to be back. And um, just know as I was talking to your pastor about the opportunity, um, he, he said some very kind words about you all to that effect. Um, and then I, I mentioned that I was excited to be here for those reasons, and he said, well, I'm excited every week that I get to preach to my church. So just, uh, that, that was a very sweet comment uh, from your pastor about you all. Um, so I know he's sad to, to miss the opportunity to uh, preach this morning, but I'm thankful to have that opportunity. So uh, with that said, if you have a Bible, I do encourage you to open up to Psalm 86, or you could look at the handout that you've been given. Um, what we read was from the Legacy Standard Bible, and I kind of went back and forth between the Legacy Standard and the ESV, uh, but I am going to, to preach primarily from the ESV, but my notes are kind of mixed, so you might see some of that mixed in there as well, so just know that that's uh, where, where I'm working from. And uh, my prayer for this sermon is that the Lord would use this uh, to, to strengthen this church, that the Lord would use this sermon to fortify the walls of this church and to strengthen your resolve. Because the reality is, is that the church in our nation is in a precarious position. We are increasingly being seen as the problem in in our country, as a problem in our culture. We're the problem for progress, right? We We don't get in line with the culture. When the culture pushes further into a rebellion against God and God's created order and pushes further into uh, irrationality, we don't jump on board. And because of that, opposition to the church is growing. This may be something you've seen in in news stories or maybe it's something you've experienced um, at at your own family's dinner table or maybe in a a family group text uh, where you're starting to recognize that your opinions as a believer are not very popular today and maybe growing uh, even less in popularity. So although it's, it's new in some ways for us in our time in history, this is not new to the church, and it's not new to God's people. It's not strange or abnormal for people to oppose God's saints, and the reason it's not new is because it's not new or strange for people to be opposed to God. And this has been the story of human history from the very beginning. From Cain murdering righteous Abel to the crucifixion of our Savior, the opposition is prevalent to God's people. The unrighteous have and always will side against Christ and His people. Well, Psalm 86 is one of those times. Psalm 86 represents when David is experiencing opposition from people who are opposed to the Lord and his people. And as we read this, you'll see, it, 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 we've already read it together, you might have noticed that this is actually a prayer of David. This isn't a song to be sung, it's a prayer to be prayed, especially in times of trouble. And we don't know exactly when this prayer was in David's life. It might have been when he was fleeing Saul, or maybe it was under the threat of rebellion from his son Absalom. But verse 14 shows us the extent of this persecution. If you look at verse 14, it says, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. So this was an intense time of persecution. They were seeking his life. More than just one person, it was a band of men, a group of men 
that have risen up against David. And in the midst of this persecution, as persecution may be coming towards us, this psalm gives us some inspired insight on what it is we ought to pray for, what it is we ought to be aiming for in our own lives. And I don't mean to talk about this as if it's only future reality coming. These are things that we need presently in the midst of the opposition we face now. Um, Our church had a conference just this last two weekends ago, um, and the topic was on suffering, and one of the, the preachers that came made mention uh, that, that we will be persecuted to the extent that Christ is made evident in our life. And, and that's both a challenge and an encouragement, that when we face persecution, that means Christ is being made evident. It's also a challenge that if we aren't facing any opposition, it leaves us with the question, is Christ being displayed in my life? But the reality is, persecution will come as we seek to be faithful to the Lord And this psalm will guide us on what it is we ought to pray and seek in those moments. We've already read the text, so instead of reading through it again, I I will just ask that we start with a time of prayer and ask for God's help as we jump into His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this opportunity. We thank You for Your love to us. Uh, We thank You for Your your faithfulness uh, to Your promises to Your people. And Lord, we pray that that would be an encouragement to us. Um, not just in this moment as we receive your word, but also as we walk in this world and face opposition. Lord, I pray for, for um, open ears and open eyes as have already been prayed, and I pray, Lord, for clear speech from me um, and wisdom. And, and ultimately, Lord, we ask that your spirit would work through your word um, for the good of your people and the good of your glory in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've already seen that this is a prayer, uh, but before we jump into verse 1, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about something that may not have been as noticeable as we worked through it the first time. So as we read this together, you see all these cries for help, pleas for requests, um, and that is obvious. But um, what would have been obvious to an ancient reader that's not so obvious to us was the structure of this psalm. Hebrew poetry, as some of you may know, uses a literary technique to highlight a central theme or main idea. And the way that they would do this was by stacking ideas in parallel from beginning to end. And so as you look at this psalm, you start to to recognize that there are things that are happening at the beginning that also happen at the end. And as you move forward, that statement's kind of repeated um, towards the end as well, and then it all progresses to one central idea or one central theme. And the structure is known as a a chiasm. And it's a very helpful device when you find one because then you know exactly what this writer intended you to get from the psalm. Like, oh, this was the main idea. This is the main point. And in a way, it's them underlining a verse and saying, here's what it's all about right here. And that's why I'm taking some time uh, to focus on this. But if you look at our psalm, it begins with a series of requests to the Lord. You know, incline your ear, preserve my life, save your servant. And then if you look at the end of the psalm, it repeats. There are requests made to the Lord. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. So you see those ideas in parallel. But then from there, you have a declaration about the steadfast love of God in verse 5. And that also happens in verse 15, right before those requests. If you move a little further in the psalm in verse 7, you see mention of David's problem. Verse 14 highlights David's problem. So you see this parallel structure working its way towards the middle. 
And what that would mean is that verses 8 and 13 would be the center section of this psalm. And within that section, verses 8 and 10 talks about God's glory among the nations because of his character. And then you look at 12 and 13, you see God's glory uh, uh, from David. God being personally glorified by David because of his character. Which puts verse 11 as the underlined verse in this structure. That's the center. That's the central theme of this psalm, is verse 11. So I want to begin with that in mind as the main idea of this psalm. Verse 11 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. It may not be what we would expect to read in the face of persecution, but this is the main request that he has. In the face of persecution, his main request is for a singular devotion of mind, heart, and life to a proper fear and reverence of who God is. And when I shared my passage with your pastor, he actually gave me some insight about the Hebrew word for unite. He said there's two words for one in Hebrew. One means like a whole made up of a lot of different parts. Uh, The example he used was a cluster of grapes. There'd be one cluster with lots of little grapes. So there's another word for one, and that is where it's the same thing all throughout. Just one block, so to speak. The word being used here for unite is the verb form of that one block, one item. He's saying, make my heart singular in purpose and singular in, in its hope and ambitions. There's no division, no separation a unity of my heart, a sincerity of my heart. And that's his prayer, that the Lord would provide a sincere and singular focus and devotion to his life. And what was the object of that devotion? Well, Yahweh himself, the Lord, to properly fear him, to reverence him, to recognize him for who he is, and to know that ultimately David's life is accountable to the Lord, not accountable to those people that are persecuting him. We need to remember that as we are faced with what the culture is telling us we ought to believe. We're not accountable to them. We're accountable to the Lord. We need to fear His name and not be distracted or, or divided in our hearts on who is it that I'm trying to please and how can I make them happy. Just ask, how can I please the Lord? That's the response in the midst of persecution is how can I please the Lord? So with that in mind, now let's go back to verse 1 and work our way through this psalm verse by verse, asking this question, well, what does it look like to have a heart that's united to fear the Lord? That's what this psalm is all about. So what does that look like? In the face of persecution, how can we have a heart that's united to fear the Lord? And I'll have three main points that cover the three main sections of this psalm. The first one is to have a dependence upon the steadfast love of God, and that's verses 1 through 7. The second section, the second point is devotion because of the steadfast love of God, verses 8 through 13, and then delight in the steadfast love of God, verses 14 through 17. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. So so the first point, the fear of the Lord looks like dependence upon the steadfast love of God. So Psalm 86, out of the gate, reflects David's dependence upon God. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. He's asking from the very beginning that he he needs the Lord to respond, to hear him, 
To bow down is another way you could say that. Um, incline your ear to me. Why? Well, because he's afflicted and needy. He has a need, and only the Lord can solve that need. And really in this section, we won't spend time on every single uh, phrase here, but you have six requests with five reasons for why he's making that request. Incline your ear. Why? Because I'm poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Whereas the Lexi Standard puts it, I am a holy one. I've been set apart by your grace, consecrated for your purposes. This wasn't a boastful claim. This wasn't David saying, look at how great I am. That's why you need to listen to me. But rather, I'm yours. I belong to you. Listen to me. And then he goes on to say, save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. So there he's trusting in the Lord. The Lord is his God. Be gracious to me, for to you do I cry. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day long. He's persistent in his, in his prayer. Just as the persistent widow, uh, as Jesus teaches us in, in the New Testament on how to pray, um, we, we pray persistently going to the Lord because he is the one that can solve our problem, our dilemma. And then he says, gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Every request is backed by a reason showing David's sincerity in his request, showing the sincerity of his heart. He's not just saying words to, to hopefully get an effect. There's a reason for his words. He's needy. He, he belongs to the Lord. He trusts in God. He calls upon God all day long, and he lifts his soul to God. He doesn't lift his soul to something else for salvation. There's an inconsistency or division in our hearts. If we pray to God and say, God, I need you to save me, and then we walk and give our soul to something else. If we really want to have a sincere heart pursuing the Lord, and when we pray these things, then we have to lift our soul to God to solve our dilemmas. God is the only one who can satisfy this need. So do we recognize our need before the Lord? Do we recognize our needs in our life? The greatest need we have is the need of forgiveness and reconciliation with the Lord. And we recognize that there's only one possible way to have that need met, which is in Christ Jesus, who gave himself for sinners. If we simply believe upon Christ, we can be saved. Do we see our needs And outside of that need, we have all sorts of needs in our lives, daily needs. Do we recognize that God really is the answer to those needs? Or do we depend upon something else instead of the Lord? The way you can recognize that is ask, well, do you ask God for those things? Are you turning to Him? Are you dependent upon Him for those things? And we usually don't have a hard time recognizing that we have needs in general But that's why the second question is so important. Do we recognize that he's the one that satisfies these needs? A heart united to fear the Lord will pray to the Lord because we recognize that we need him and that he can satisfy our needs. Now there is a grounding found in the character of God for these requests. And that comes in verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love, to all who call upon you. So David's turning to the Lord because of the character of the Lord. 
we actually see this characteristic, an, an attribute of God, his loving kindness or his steadfast love, mentioned three different times in this psalm. And we'll spend some more time as we uh, see that phrase later. But for now, recognize that David is running to the Lord because of who the Lord is. And that's why we ought to run to the Lord as well. And then we end this first section of dependence on a hopeful expectation. Verse 6 and 7. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble I call upon you, for you answer me. That's why he goes to the Lord, because the Lord answers. 1 John 5.14 says this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we seek anything according to his will, he hears us. Charles Spurgeon said this in commenting on this psalm. He said, it is useless to cry to those who cannot or will not hear. Once convince men that prayer has no effect upon God and they will have no more of it. In these busy days and especially in troublous times, men cannot afford to waste time in entreaties which must be unavailing. Our experience confirms us in the belief that Jehovah the living God really does aid those who call upon Him. And therefore, we pray and mean to pray, not because we are so fascinated by prayer that for its own sake we could continue in it if if it proved to be merely folly and superstition, as vain philosophers assert, but because we really, indeed, and of truth, find it to be a practical and effectual means of obtaining help from God in the hour of need. And then he ends with this sentence. He says, there can be no reason for praying if there be no expectation of the Lord's answering. If we don't expect the Lord to respond to our prayers, we have no reason to pray. And so maybe the reason we're not praying in dependence is because we aren't expecting the Lord to hear us. So we ought to pray expectantly and depend expectantly. Are you dependent upon the Lord? In the second section, what we see is a personal devotion. So the first one is we need a dependence upon the Lord. The second section, we see we need a devotion to the Lord. We've already mentioned verses 8 through 13 as the center of this psalm. But in this section, we see a shift. Verse 8 through 10 begins with a global glory given to God. Then verses 12 through 13 talk about a personal glory that we ascribe to God. So first, this global glory in verses 8 through 10. We read, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. God is glorified here in his uniqueness. David says there there is none like you among the gods. Now, is David saying that there are other gods that you could compare God to? Well, not really. If you look at verse 10, he says, For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So there aren't other gods he's comparing God to. But there is a reality that other nations claim to have gods. And there are other gods that, that, that people say are gods. And he says, among them, even what people say about them are not like this God. The Bible talks about false gods in two main ways. One, it says that they're nothing, that God is the only God. But it also says that just because they're not divine doesn't mean they're not anything. And this we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20. 
When Paul's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, he says, what do I imply then, that food offers to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. So what he's saying, there are no gods like our gods. Idols, or those who claim to be gods, are, are really what Scripture recognizes as demonic. So that's your option. You have the true God or you have demons. But there are no gods like our God. No God even promises what our God promises, and no God gives what our God promises to give. It's not just his existence that make him unique, but his work. And we see this in the next verse, verse 9. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. God is unique in his work. Only the God of Scripture provides salvation, true salvation, not by works, but by grace. Islam portrays a God who forgives your sins as long as your good outweighs your bad. The Judaizers of Paul's day claimed only those who followed the works of the Old Testament law could be saved. And every other religion and every other worldview that exists is designed to glorify you. To glorify your works. If you can do this just like I tell you to do this, then you're going to have whatever it is they, they say salvation might be. If you earn it and behave well enough. You can save yourselves. It's only the gospel of Christ that says you cannot reach God, but that God reached down to you. Only the gospel is by grace, and there is no other way for you to be right with God. There's no work, no religion, no philosophy, no morality, no praying, no baptizing, no church attendance, no service. You can't earn your place with God. Your salvation is by grace alone, and God is unique in His work of salvation. If you ever hear of a God that says you can work your way to Him, know that that God must be just as unholy as you are. In fact, if you can be with a God through your works, not only will you be with Him now, you'll also be with that God for eternity in hell, suffering God's wrath. Jesus is the only way. Among all the nations, there is no God like the God of Scriptures. And what does this lead to? That God will be glorified by the nations. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. There is a coming day when the nations will declare the glory of God. The nations will come and worship. That is not to say that every individual will be saved, but there will be from every nation people worshiping at the throne of God. Revelation 7, 9 through 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a future reality. People from every tribe and language and people uh, and, and, and tribe and tongue and language will come to the throne of Jesus and worship him. God will be globally glorified. But that global reality must become a personal testimony. And there's a turn in this section in the psalm, a change from a global or general truth to personal affirmation of these truths. And verse 11 is that hinge. 
the heart of this prayer, of David's prayer in the midst of his trouble, is to take these truths about God that he knows will be globally recognized and make them true for himself. You can almost hear the emphasis of teach me your way, O Lord. I recognize this is true and going to be true in the nations. Now teach me to walk this way. Align my steps in that truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Make my life agree with these things. He's saying, let let me join in the chorus of the nations that's coming. Let me be a part of that choir. And then we see verse 12 and 13 describe these things in a personal way. Verse 12, David says, I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Remember, he's in the day of trouble. There are men aiming to take his life, yet he gives thanks. But it's not because his circumstances have instantly changed halfway through writing this psalm. He looks up, oh, they're gone, now I'll give thanks. That's not what happened as he's writing this. He's thanking God for who God is in the midst of his circumstances. When we face a day of trouble, are we only thankful to the Lord when our situation improves? Or do we thank God for who he is and his steadfast love to us in the midst of the trial? Again, going back to our conference, it was H.P. Charles that said, he said, you know, singing... Um, great is thy faithfulness. What he said, and I know what he means, but he said it doesn't count in church. He says it counts when you're in the midst of a trial. That's when it really sings. That's when that song really ha- has weight, is when you sing great is thy faithfulness in the face of a trial. And that thanks is coupled with an expression of personally glorifying God. You see in verse 12, I give thanks to you with my whole heart and I will glorify your name forever. He says, I know the general truth. Now let me glorify you as the the globe will glorify you. Verse 13, we see the grounding for this personal gratitude and for this desire to glorify God. This is personally applied theology right here. He says, for great is your steadfast love toward me. He doesn't just say great is your steadfast love, although he did the first time, and he'll say that again. Right here he's emphasizing his personal reaction to God's love. Great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. That phrase, your steadfast love, this this actually comes from earlier in Scripture at Mount Sinai, an interaction that Moses has with the Lord in Exodus. Exodus 33, Moses asked God to show him his glory. Uh, chapter 33, verse 18 says, Moses said, please show me your glory. And the Lord responds, he, he says, I will make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then if you fast forward to the next chapter, you actually see this happen. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
the Lord himself proclaimed his name and character to Moses. And David recognized that those truths are not to remain general statements about the nature of God. Three times he alludes to that encounter with Moses in this psalm. And he recognizes something, that that's no help to him unless it's true for him. What good is it to know that God is abounding in steadfast love unless I know that God is abounding in steadfast love to me? David wasn't rehearsing systematic theology. He wasn't having a debate with someone about some biblical truth. He was rejoicing in the truth of who God is for him. Some of us in here likely know these truths, but are only rehearsing them on a Sunday morning and not rejoicing in them on a Sunday morning. If that's you, when is this going to stop being a rehearsal and when is it going to start being clinging to the truth? The answer to that is only when it becomes personal. Until it's personal, it's just pretend. A pretend faith will not save because a pretend faith cannot save. Only a personal faith, a genuine faith, and sincere faith reflected in a personal knowledge of these truths will save. And if you are saved, let this be a reminder that we need to hold on to these things, to depend upon these things, rejoice in these things, and not just declare these things to be true or know them to be true, but hold to them, to cling to them. And this brings us to the final section, a delight in the steadfast love of God, verses 14 through 17. We see something set in opposition to the steadfast love of God at the beginning of verse 14. David writes, O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. So here we get a little bit of a picture of the persecution he's facing. There are insolent men, ruthless men, aiming to take out David. They're arrogant, they're proud, boastful, falsely believing they won't be held accountable for their actions. They take what they want and they do what they want. And what's David's relationship to them? Well, if they're a flaming arrow, David is the bullseye. That's their relationship right here. They have their their sights set in on David. And why is David the target? And why are they arrogant? Well, we have the reason in the verse. It says, and they do not set you before them. They don't fear God. They don't do what David is asking for help to do. Their hearts are not united to fear the Lord. And this is the root cause of their arrogance. It's the root cause of their boasting. And it's the root cause of their ruthlessness against David. They are unjust because they have no concern about their soul before the Lord. While David is making it his aim to live for the Lord. And this expresses a grand biblical truth. That there is a great divide that exists in all of humanity. That those who love the Lord by His grace and to His glory... And then there are those who are opposed to the Lord. And the group that is opposed to, be, to the Lord are going to be opposed to the Lord's people. 
Jesus says this in John 15. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Believers ought to expect opposition and persecution and recognize that that opposition is spiritual. There's there's a spiritual reality um, that needs to be fought with spiritual weapons and spiritual truth. They don't fear the Lord. So we ought to remind ourselves of God's truth. And that's what David does next. David preaches to himself in the midst of this sermon about the character of God. We don't dwell on the character of those who oppose us. We delight in the character of our God. Verse 14 or 15, he says, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In contrast to the men he's just described, he then reminds himself of the character of the Lord he's praying to. He's quoting Exodus 34. So we know that he delighted in the law of God because now he's quoting the scriptures. He's actually, this is a great example of someone praying the scriptures. David himself is praying through Exodus 34 and his circumstance. He's asking God to unite his heart around these truths. He's not in the hands of those ruthless men. He's not in the hands of the persecutor. His his fate is not up to them. His fate is in the hands of a merciful and gracious God. Romans 8.31 tells us, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for him, nothing can stand against him. If he fears God, he doesn't have to fear those men. Matthew 10, 26, uh, well, I'll just read 28, says this, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear them. Don't fear your persecutors. Can they kill your body? Yes. But that's it. An earthly death that's coming to all of us unless the Lord returns. The very reason for your confidence in the face of persecution is because of this truth of God's steadfast love for you in Christ, that nothing can separate you from the love of God, that everything that comes to you is by God's sovereign hand. So when people mock you for your faith, preach this truth to yourself. When you find opposition, even maybe in your own family, preach this truth. To yourself. When it seems like you're missing out, preach this truth to yourself that God loves you. And you need to recognize as well that their end, the persecutor's end, is not good unless the Lord is gracious to them and saves them. And David actually alludes to this in his final section of his prayer. And very briefly, we'll look at four things that we ought to pray. As we close this out, this prayer, or uh, close out the psalm, um, as we are facing persecution, as David faced persecution. Verse 16 says, Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, 
have helped me and comforted me. So number one, what David asked for is, is grace. Turn to me and be gracious to me. He's not demanding that God save him. He's not saying, I deserve this or I've earned this. He's asking for God's grace on his life. So we, like David, need to pray for God's grace and recognize that even having a united heart to fear the Lord is God's grace in our life. The second thing David asked for is strength. Give strength to your servant. Paul also asked for boldness as he declared the gospel. David recognized himself as God's servant, a son of your maidservant, saying, I'm, I'm either talking about his, his mother being a faithful believer or, or being of the people of, of God who, is a, who were faithful, the Israelites. And he's declaring that his line is in that faithful service to God. And he's asking for strength for that service. So when we ask for strength, recognize that the strength we're asking for is in the service of God. Lord, give me strength for faithfulness in, in the midst of the persecution. Give me strength to be faithful to what you've called me to. Not a strength to get our way, or not a strength to get out of persecution, but a strength for serving the Lord. And then he does ask here for deliverance. It's not wrong to ask for the persecution to end. He says, save the son of your maidservant and then show me a sign of of your favor. David asked for a sign of God's favor. He's not asking for a miraculous sign. He's asking for vindication. He's asking for clear evidence of God's help and comfort. Well, why do I say that? Well, if you look at the explanation, this, this request has a second part. He says that those, that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. He's asking for a sign of God's favor that will show his enemies that God is on his side and will put them to shame because God has helped them has helped him. So that's the sign that he's asking for. Evidence of God's help and comfort. We ought to pray that God's deliverance is evident with us. Especially when we're around those who do not fear the Lord. So that it doesn't mean that that we're always going to escape the persecution or escape death, but that in the face of whatever that persecution might be, our confidence in the Lord is a testimony. The comfort he's given us is a testimony to who the Lord is and his steadfast faithfulness to us even in the midst of trials. We ought to pray with with the words of Paul in mind in Philippians 1. He says this, verse 18, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that will, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's the type of sign that we ought to pray for, that we can be confident regardless of what comes our way. And then finally, we ought to pray for shame upon those who are persecuting us. And this is not out of a, a hatred for them, but out of a, a concern and compassion for them. 
we ought to pray in the midst of God's salvation to us that it's clear and evident that God is not on their side. We pray for an awareness among those persecuting us that they might be made shown their error, that shame would follow their opposition of God, that God would convict them of their sin. And the reality is is that shame is coming to those who oppose the Lord, either through a humble confession of sin and personal uh, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ now, or at a declaration of their sinfulness as they stand before the Lord in judgment. It's good and right to pray that those truths may be made evident for those who are opposing us. We pray for their salvation. So in this psalm, we see a dependence upon the character of God. We see a personal devotion to the character of God and then a delight in the character of our God. We delight that we are in His hands and not in the hands of our persecutors. That's what it looks like to have a heart united to fear His name. Let that be our prayer for our days that we would be a people that have a heart united to fear the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank You uh, for Your Word. We thank You for Psalm 86, Lord. I pray that this would be a psalm that uh, we hold near and dear to our hearts in the face of persecution, that when trials come that we would turn to this psalm that we would pray through this psalm and that we would continually be asking for a heart that's united to fear your name. Lord, for those areas in our life where we turn to other things to satisfy, that we we take our dependence that ought to be upon you and turn it to um, our own abilities, our bank accounts, our um, uh, entertainment, whatever it is, Lord, that we turn to, Instead of looking to you to satisfy our needs, Lord, I pray that you would show us those things, convict us of those things, cause us to repent, and unite our heart to fear your name. And Lord, for those here that do not know you, that have not trusted in you, that, um, that are in opposition to your will in their life, I pray that you would humble them and use your word this morning to bring them to you through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.